Arkansas Row Crops Radio, providing up-to-date information and timely recommendations on row crop production in Arkansas. Welcome to Arkansas Row Crops Radio. I'm Jared Hardkey, Rice Extension Agronomist for the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture. Today on Rice and Advice, I've got Dr. Trent Roberts on here with me, our Extension Soil Specialist. And we're going to dive off into the topic of rice pre-plant and early season fertility. And I guess to put another little spin on that, uh, really focus certainly on the economic situation we're in for fertilizers. So how are you today, Trent? I'm doing good. How are you, Jared? I'm doing great. So for the for the sake of time, we, we know what we're after uh, looking at the economics on this year and how we're going to make any money growing a rice crop and I think that starts with the first thing we're going to throw on the ground is our fertilizer. So uh, it's 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 already been interesting, and here here recently it's gotten more interesting. Well, unfortunately, it's one of those uh, scenarios where I'm I'm getting a lot of calls and a lot of questions, but they're not the kinds I want. Right, so. Usually when we, when we want attention, we want good attention, not, not all these hard questions and these tough topics where, um, you know, making these decisions can have significant impacts, you know, not only on yield, but, but profitability. And the hardest part for me right now is, you know, typically we can project what things are going to be like in a month or two months. And this is just a perfect storm uh, with everything that's going on, you know, globally in terms of supply chain and economics that I don't think really anyone has any idea what's going to happen in the next uh, six months, let alone, uh, you know, years down the road. Yeah, we, we've definitely seen just over the past several months, though, you know, that initial run up to a fade back. Uh, you know, but still didn't know where we were going to go. And then more recently, another pretty big run up, you know, here, as you're saying, you know, here we are, you know, we don't know where it's fixing to turn from here tomorrow. Didn't know where it was going to turn yesterday. And obviously we're not getting into the, the fuel debate at this point, but certainly that's another good example of don't know which way things are going to turn from day to day, but uh, also going to have an impact on us uh, on the ground in agriculture. Well, so I... You know, and I just try to remind everybody that, that every year we get more and more into a global economy, right? And regardless of what we can produce or manufacture here in the U.S., it's still impacted by what's happening everywhere else. And, and more and more that's becoming the case. And it just it gets so hard to predict the volatility. Yeah, I've had a lot of those conversations of late about just how small the world is, and and it is a global supply chain for for everything we're we're discussing and dealing with, and the price impacts. So, even for things that we may produce a lot more of closer to home, they're still sold on a world market, and and directly impacted and influenced. So, uh, again. It'll continue to change as it goes from here, but but we're, we're going to try to dive in a little bit and focus on it, at least from a from a management standpoint, a crop management standpoint with our fertilizers. Again, primarily focused here on our on really our, our pre-plant or at planting fertilizers, phosphorus, potassium, zinc for today. We'll go ahead and kind of jump right in. Why not start off with with phosphorus and kind of go into it where. Again, just, just talking rice today, 
uh, you know, where can Trent, where can we potentially reduce our phosphorus rates? What, what kind of approach can we take with our phosphorus management this season? So phosphorus and rice is a little bit tricky. Um, you know, we've got some recommendations out there for producers to follow, but there's probably more wiggle room in reducing or cutting phosphorus than our other nutrients. Um, and there are a couple of different ways that we can look at this, but what I always want to remind people of first and foremost is how much the crop is actually going to remove, right? So I, I want them to keep that in the back of their mind, just because, you know, anytime we produce a crop and we remove a grain, uh, we're taking a certain amount of nutrients with that. And so if we think of a 200 bushel rice crop, you know, it's typically going to remove between 45 and 60 pounds of P2O5 per acre. And so I want people to keep that in the back of their mind because at some point that has to be replaced, right? And there are times, you know, in the interim for a year or two, we can rely on those soil nutrients to help supply that. But if we continue to pull off high yields, you know, eventually we're going to mine the soil to a level that fertilizer is going to have to be, you know, added back and is, is going to be essential. And if you look at our phosphorus recommendations in particular, they're split up by soil pH and the rates vary across those different pHs. And if you look closely, you'll notice that for pHs less than 6.5 or what we would consider acidic type pHs, our overall phosphorus recommendations are lower, right? Regardless of our soil test P. So right. what, what a producer can kind of take that as is, well, in acidic soils, our P is slightly more available. So we can rely more on, you know, the, the soil supplying phosphorus capacity. Um, but if we're being honest, right, in a year like this, when supplies are tight, if you have a soil pH, you know, less than 6.5, there's an opportunity that you could probably emit phosphorus from your rice program and not see any reduction in your yield potential. But you have to remember, you are removing nutrients that need to be replaced at some point. And so, you know, even if you're able to just put 100 pounds of triple superphosphate, right, or 100 pounds of DAP out, you're at least balancing your removal with that fertilizer application. And so, you know, that, that's kind of where I would, would consider that. Now, when we shift over to the higher pH soils, right, greater than 6.5, our rates go up because our soil P availability goes down. Uh, but a similar type situation where unless we're really, really low soil test P, and by that I mean, you know, less than nine parts per million soil test P, we can probably emit phosphorus on soils that are greater than six and a half pH and greater than nine parts per million soil test phosphorus and not see any detrimental effects. It's that you know, high pH, very low soil test phosphorus where we need to be concerned. Um, and phosphorus is one of those, and Jared, you know, it's, uh, it's usually not the whole field that shows it, right? That's and it. So the, the tricky part is you go out there and look and you go, okay, well, here's a patch here and here's a patch here. And you go, well, it's, it's 10 acres out of a hundred. Is it really worth messing with? And, 
and it gets a little bit tough, but those are kind of some of the guidelines that I would think about as it pertains to phosphorus management. And, and you hit on it with, you know, how spatial it can be and, and where it shows up. And, and that's the only, you know, we can talk about pulling way back, you know, to, to near omission, you know, knowing that it's so, you know, we're getting behind the eight ball, you know, that's not, we can't continue that. But you've you've talked about it a lot. I know this this spring and at various meetings the importance of if you have you know soil test history on fields, you know knowing where you're trending if you're if you're maintaining or, or possibly even increasing, you know to know truly how good a shape you're in versus one snapshot. Uh, again, to help make that decision on on how you're going to potentially pull back phosphorus. But even another another step from there is you know, grid sampling, you talk about the patches, you know, grid sampling versus, you know, whole field composite. So, you know, we can talk about, you know, a field, okay, well, the pH is below six and a half and seems okay on in, on P. There's certainly the potential for some spots out there to be really high pH and really low P that it's going to be possible if we pull way back that, that they show themselves you know, later on into the season. And yeah, then we've got that argument, you know, do we mess with them or not? But the odds are, if they do show up, they're going to be a very small limited area. And and I still, even with, with a major pullback in phosphorus, don't expect to see much of that ever based on what we've been seeing. I mean, let, let's be honest, Trent, in the last 10 years, how many phosphorus deficiencies have you looked at in rice? I'm talking commercial fields. Very few. Yeah. And, and I think yeah. that's that's a result of of good sound fertilizer programs. Right. So in the last 15, 20 years since we've kind of, you know, updated our recommendations, um, we've seen producers are applying adequate amounts of phosphorus now um, in their rotations. And we just we don't see P deficiency near near like we used to. Yeah. And I, I think that just kind of adds to you know, your comments about where we can, you know, pick those spots. So I think you've kind of already answered my, my next question, uh, just, you know, by process of elimination, what you described, but just to kind of, you know, kind of bring it home, make sure we don't miss pointing it out. Where can we not afford to cut phosphorus? Yeah. So, you know, with direct seeded delayed flood rice or, or you know, traditionally conventional flooded rice, uh, we can't afford to cut pH is greater than six and a half and soil test phosphoruses, phosphorus concentrations less than nine parts per million. And the other big one is furrow irrigated rice. Okay. So what, what I, my message to folks this year has been in a furrow irrigated rice production system, we're already adding a lot of stressors to that rice plant. Right, we're growing it in an upland condition. Depending on the weather and our irrigation strategy, there could be, you know, drought stress. There could be added disease pressure. But the one thing we do know is that in the portions of the field that do not remain flooded, and um, you know, even portions of the field that that alter between kind of a flooded and a non-flooded state those areas are gonna to tend to stay more aerobic and phosphorus availability in those soils is gonna be much lower than if we were growing 
continuously flooded rice. And what that means is that if I have lower pea availability in the soil, those plants have to rely much more on fertilizer phosphorus to produce maximal yield. And so the, the one thing I'm, I'm really focusing on with variegated rice is those soil test concentrations that you get on your recommendation report are the minimum amounts that we need to consider applying. Yeah, I, I agree. We, we've seen it and, and have a little bit of data. And I think we know we do have a little bit of a, of a road ahead of us from a research standpoint on. We'll see. Got to do a little work, see where we may need to go from a soil test recommendation more specific to fur irrigated rice. Again, because of some of those changes and phosphorus is going to be a big component in that. But uh, I, I'm, I'm with you on, on sticking with the rates. But we, there's likely, you know, nothing's guaranteed, but there's a good chance there'll be some adjustment in the future on some of those. We continue to press on for irrigated rice. Uh, obviously, we'll let the data lead us on, on, on what we need to do, but, but there's work to be done. We've seen the differences in uptake uh, in those areas of the fields. Again, not surprising based on the lack of a flood condition there versus flooded conditions. So, uh, with that, kind of kind of moving on from phosphorus, let's talk a little bit about potassium or potash. And again, same same kind of general conversation about where can you know, we potentially reduce our, our potash input and what what kind of approach are you recommending guys take if they're looking at trying to pull back on potash? Yeah, so for potash, you know, the nice thing about it is uh, much more flexibility. Um, in terms of correcting deficiencies and application rates compared to some of our other pre-plant nutrients like phosphorus or zinc. And, you know, we don't have any pH considerations when we're talking about potash. It's entirely based on soil test K concentration. And so if we take that into consideration, you know, our potash application rates are going to range anywhere from, you know, zero to 120 you know, pounds or units of K2O per acre. And let's jump back to that grain removal portion. Rice actually doesn't remove very much potash in the grain, right? So you talk about a 200 bushel uh, rice crop, it's only going to remove about 30 units of, P of K2O uh, per acre. The in difference the in the yeah. grain, yeah, in the grain. Um, the difference is rice, a rice plant actually needs about as much potash as nitrogen, right? The difference between potassium and nitrogen, though, is the soil supplies much more potassium to the plant than nitrogen. And so that's why typically, you know, our, our potash rates are much lower. What I try to tell people is, you know, if you have a potash rate above 60 units of K2O per acre, so a, a 90, right, or a 120 application rate, this, this consider putting out the 60, you know, as a, as a pre-plant and then coming back, you know, post-flood with some of our tools or just monitoring it for nutrient deficiency symptoms, because that gives us some flexibility in the sense that, you know, 60 could get us a long way, right? It could get us to the finish line. But also knowing that we've got in-season tissue tests and we've got ways to determine if that was adequate and make those applications and still achieve maximal yield all the way to the boot, 
you know, stage of, of rice. And, and so really, you know, the point I'm getting at there is, you know, we can, we can adjust some of those higher rates, you know, like the 90 and the 120, knowing that there's ample opportunity to come back in season and make corrections or make adjustments if we, if we need to. So on that, so coming back, so if I'm going to pull back my rate and, and go with the lower than recommended rate, you know, at planting, and I'm going to come back in season to, to pull some tissue samples to see how I'm doing, what sample am I pulling and what timing do you want to see me pull those? Yeah, so we've got a little bit of research on this, and typically we're not going to want you to take a tissue sample until after, you know, half-inch internode elongation. And we're going to want you to sample the Y leaf. So that's going to be the uppermost collared leaf on the rice plant. And typically we need to get, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20 of those uh, from a representative area and submit for tissue analysis uh, for potassium. And we've got an interpretation, um, critical concentrations. You know, it's, it's similar to what we've talked about in soybean, but it's a lot more straightforward. Um, it's not as dynamic, meaning it doesn't change as much throughout the season. Um, but it's one of those tools that, that could be very useful. And, and, you know, we can start at half inch beginning internode elongation. And, you know, if everything looks fine there, then maybe we don't take another test. But you know, maybe it's borderline and uh, we put out a little potash with a mid-season application or, you know, maybe we check it a few weeks later and we throw a little potash in with a, a boot application, right? But a lot of different opportunities to correct potash deficiency in a rice crop. Yeah, I mean, that that's one of the nice things about potash and its responsiveness. I mean, we, we can go out there with an additional application, assuming it looks like we're we're a little short. I mean, all the way right up close to heading. And, and still get a response again, if it's needed, still still get a really good response from that potash application. Um, well, but, and, you know, Jared, if we're being honest, that that is the. Uh, that's the most extreme approach I would take right now. If you don't feel like, let's say you get a recommendation for 120 units of K2O and you say, why well, I, I can't cut it in half, right? Like I want to save money, but I don't want to cut it down to 60, you know, what, what's somewhere in between. And when we look at those rates, like 120, 90, you know, 60, you know, typically we can probably take 20 to 30% off of those, you know, and, and save a portion of, of our input cost and not sacrifice or compromise a lot of yield, right? So to me, those are the, the two scenarios that you can do. And it just comes back to your comfortability and, and whether or not you want to do, you know, potentially an in-season application if the tissue test uh, indicates that it's needed. Yeah, that's that that's still one of my my preferred. Yeah, not not pulling back way too far with potash, but yeah, I mean it's an excellent example. Two two different approaches you can take there. It just depends on a little bit how extreme you know you you do want to get with with trying to save those costs, but knowing that uh, the potential is going to exist. You know, some fields that you may need to come back. Um, and even though I mentioned, the, you know, you can go as late as, you know, just prior to heading. I mean, the preference is that you go before that. I mean, 
you're sampling around, you know, after joint movement, you know, around half inch, you know, you've got a couple weeks or so to get that out still and still be fairly, you know, still nearly a week in advance of heading or anything like that to, to get it out. So there's a big window of response we can work with if you take the more extreme option of a harder cut early. But the odds are, if you just cut back, like you said, 25, 30%, probably not going to see anything, you know, if you sample, you know, that would indicate that, that you're going to need to apply more. I mean, it's just not that likely uh, with the relatively small reduction. So hopefully we can utilize a couple of those strategies. Um, kind of, kind of same, same question as before. And again, we touched on some of it, but what, you know, where can folks not afford to cut potash this year? Well, so when we're looking at, at um, potash in particular, to me, that's one of those where tracking the soil test levels becomes important. Um, and in my opinion, probably a little bit more than phosphorus mm -hmm. from the standpoint of we know that the rice plant needs, you know, so much more potassium than phosphorus. And we're relying on that soil test K or that soil potassium to supply a significant amount of what that plant needs. And if we're tracking our soil test levels in those fields and we see a field that over time the soil test K is declining, you know, what that suggests is that we're preferentially removing more potash than we've been putting back in. And so we're already mining that soil K. And those scenarios are ones where we probably can't afford to cut because whatever we've been doing in the past has been a cut, right? <laughs> whether, right. whether it was intended or not, it was, it was not sufficient. Uh, but, but those are the scenarios. And, and then once again, with the furrow irrigated rice, you know, I'm going to tell people don't cut just because potassium is so closely tied to disease pressures in rice. And we know that when we're in those non-flooded scenarios, we can get a significant, you know, increase in disease pressure. Uh, so, so we don't want to cut potash in that fur irrigated rice scenario. And then uh, along the, the lines of the disease pressure, um, you know, if you've had a history of, of stem rots or things like that, you know, that's a pretty good indicator that you're suffering from potash deficiency or, or a hidden hunger with potassium type scenario. And so if you have those in the back of your mind, you know, from, from previous field history, you know, then chances are once again, your potash management in that field has been, you know, subpar or suboptimal. And those are situations where we probably want to avoid uh, cutting potash uh, even further. You know, the, just from some observations the past couple of years, talking about even on row rice, and we, we haven't gotten really, you know, soil type or soil texture specific with, with anything too much yet. But um, for potash, you know, we had some interesting observations in a couple of furrow irrigated fields that were on largely clay to to, you know, maybe silty clay, you know, clay loam kind of, kind of deal that at the upper end of the field, showed what appeared to be very plain potash deficiency, which is, you know, knock you over to, to walk out there and say it's one of the last things you expect uh, there. But again, the trends remain the same in our plant sampling that the uptake 
even on clay soils upper end of fields is is greatly reduced so you know again that's it we you know on a lot of those soils it, it doesn't even come back recommending any potash but it's something we're gonna have to watch out for in the future yeah and it's it's really tricky and you know i'd encourage everyone here listening to to go take my soil fertility class because we'll we'll discuss this but you know, we traditionally think of potash or potassium being taken up by diffusion as, you know, the nutrient uptake mechanism. But when you have flooded soils, then mass flow, right, is also another mechanism that plants can use to take up potash. And so I wonder, like in a flooded rice crop, how much the plant actually relies on mass flow to help aid in potash uptake. And when we remove that flood, we remove, you know, a, a plant uptake mechanism for that specific nutrient. And, and maybe, you know, it's having more of an effect than we would have expected. But, right, it's, it's like we always say, Jared, the more we know, the less we know. And so that's it's, it. <laughs> education is the progressive discovery of our own ignorance. That's that's a fact. Another opportunity. That's that's it. Uh, so, so that kind of, you know, it, it, at least, you know, covers, you know, generally where we are on, on, on potash at this point. Another one, I don't think I've gotten too many questions on this so far this year. Uh, we've again, certainly covered it, some meetings and things, but, but what about zinc? What should guys be doing about their zinc fertility this year? Well, so, so Jared, when we were preparing for this podcast, you know, I sat down for a second and I realized we've been so focused on nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium that I have no idea what like zinc sulfate is costing people right now. I don't think it's very different than, than it's been the past couple of years now. So yeah, that's going to get me a phone call by somebody listening to this podcast who's going to tell me I'm wrong in some way. Uh, but I, and I haven't looked at it, uh, within the last little bit, but I don't think it's very different. Huh. Well, and, and that's good though, right? I mean, we, we don't need it to go up just cause everything else does, but you know, my approach with zinc is not, not something that we want to cut just because even though it's a micronutrient and it's needed in small amounts, it's just as essential as all the other, um, elements, there's some tricky aspects to the zinc recommendation, but, you know, if you're less than, you know, 4.1 parts per million soil test zinc and you're greater than 6.0 pH, I mean, you need 10 pounds of actual zinc per acre to uh, prevent a zinc deficiency and make sure you maximize your yield and productivity. Um, you know, very similar to phosphorus, zinc deficiency can be spotty right? It can show up in pockets in the field uh, based on soil test zinc changes or, or textural changes. But like everyone knows, uh, zinc deficiency is the hardest nutrient deficiency to correct and the most costly. And what I always try to tell people is with, with no other nutrient other than zinc, is that ounce of prevention worth, you know, who knows what in, in makeup later. Um, and so zinc is not something that I want to try to cut. You know, I want to follow that soil test recommendation, whether I'm furrow irrigated or I'm flood irrigated. Um, and I want to try to use those rates as, as close as possible. 
you know, we do get some benefits out of, out of zinc seed treatments, but I, I hate to say it when, when the soil test need, says you need 10 pounds I and mean, you need 10 pounds. Um, there are often questions that arise about distribution and being able to cut rates and, and those types of things. And that's unfortunately a case by case basis, you know, so what you're able to do on your farm with like a, a multi-nutrient blended fertilizer uh, is not what someone else can do. And so unfortunately, you know, those are kind of questions we have to field on a case by case basis, but long story short, uh, zinc is not something I would consider cutting in, in any of our rice production systems. Yeah. As, as you kind of touched on, there's, there's certainly going to be some opportunity out there, some soils that, you know, are kind of close to that recommendation line, you know, whether, whether it's recommended or not that, yeah, okay, zinc seed treatment, like you said, in a blend that, that has some amount of zinc, stuff like that. Is that, is that going to get you by? Arguably, yes. It's not going to change your, your soil situation, but, you know, by any means, you know, with, with those small amounts out there, but, but could get you by. But most of our recommendations do fall into a, a considerable amount and, and at least a couple of numbers, you know, I've got handy uh, you know, yeah, running, you know, 25 pounds of zinc sulfate is, you know, 30 bucks an acre, you know, right about where we've, you know, generalized them being. And, and you know, Trent, you're talking about, you know, prevention, uh, you know, better than, than trying to cure a problem later. So we, we use the example a lot that, you know, if it costs you, in this case, maybe it's $30 an acre to get 10 pounds of actual zinc out there, zinc sulfate. Okay, that's $30. Well, that you're not likely to have any problems then, you know, in that year and, and you're building the soil test. Well, if you don't put any out and you do have a zinc deficiency, the, the Band-Aid or the Cure is just the liquid version that costs $25 to $30 an acre to spray on. And okay, so they're equal. Well, but no, they're not because the liquid sprayed on doesn't build soil test. And you forgot about the fact that in order for it to really work, we tell you that you have to drain the field first and then you have to put it on. And then most likely to really get it back going, you need to put on some urea or ammonium sulfate uh, and, and then bring the water back. So it's not, it's not truly swapping cost. It's, it's potentially a massive increase in cost if we don't try to get that corrected. So Spending the smart money up front on zinc sulfate still still going to be the way I continue to recommend. Yeah, and you know most of our research and there's some there's some wiggle room there shows that you know typically if you use that ten pounds of actual zinc application rate, you know, and usually three to four years you'll build your soil test zinc level up enough that it no longer recommends zinc. Um, and so that's, that's truly a nutrient that, you know, you're banking those credits, you know, or you're banking that nutrient to take advantage of, of later. Yeah, and, we have a lot, lot harder time building some of our other nutrients, but that one, yeah. And I know this, uh, this is a nutrient-focused podcast, but as long as we're on the subject of zinc, you know, I think it would behoove us to bring up, uh, isn't there a new herbicide that's getting registered? Um, that 
is is Rogue going to be available for folks yes. to use? Yes. Yep. And so Rogue, right? I mean, I'm not a herbicide guy, but Rogue's the one we put in the water. Hose That's red. right. And so what I keep trying to tell people is you better make sure your zinc is in order if you're going to use Rogue because, you know, if you have a zinc deficiency and you've got your Rogue out there, Call the rice agronomist. Don't call me. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. I mean, you're 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 going to give up that activity and control. You're going to again give up some nitrogen. We've got to throw back out there. I mean, yeah, the, the problems are going to multiply in that scenario. That's exactly right. So that's a, that's a good example to bring up. Yeah, uh, head those off before they start, Trent. I appreciate that. Oh yeah. So that that's what I, that's been worrying me ever since we started doing the research on Rogue is not worrying me but just man we need to get out of front of these zinc issues and make sure that we've got those taken care of well before we ever flood those fields exactly yeah we, we don't want to be putting that into a, into a bad situation where we where we have to give up on a good herbicide we just got out there and well established um i i think that was you know you know generally speaking you know the majority of what what I think we kind of intended to cover today, running through, just kind of giving an overview. So, I mean, hopefully everybody got a little something out of that for, for different guidance in your scenario. Uh, Trent and I are both certainly available for, uh, you know, emails, phone calls, texts to, to certainly answer more specific questions. I know we've both been getting a lot of those over the winter about you know super specific scenarios and trying to tease things out and and we'll certainly try to help you there as best we can uh like always i mean we're all looking for super specific answers uh but why we want to try to cover some of the options today there are still some different options to go with with each of these that you're still going to have to make a choice uh and again if we're trying to reduce inputs we're accepting the fact that we're assuming some risk with reducing rates, trying to, to reduce our input costs. And, and I know, I mean, Trent and I are both very comfortable that, that we don't have any real fears of, of anything really going poorly with some of these reductions we're talking about. But there's going to be, you know, spots in fields show up in an occasional field, things like that that maybe got pulled back or Maybe it's related timing the soil samples were taken or something, you know, who knows, uh, as far as the number we're working off of to make our adjustments. That's why I love soil test history. Not just a single snapshot. I can know if something looks odd about that, that one soil test I may be working off of this year. I can look back at several more years past and go, yeah, maybe this is really more where I am. I need to hedge my bet a little bit one way or another. So that that, that's what I hope we can kind of lean on a little bit in the future. So, Trent, any, any kind of parting comments or anything you'd like to make? Well, my only parting comment would be, you know, like Jared mentioned, we're, we're always ready and willing to help. Um, for those of you that, that try to call me, uh, if I don't answer, please leave a message or text me. You know, just you got to remember, uh, with me teaching class and other things, I'm, I'm not ignoring you, um, but I also hate telemarketers. And so I live in Fayetteville. And if I see, you know, a downstate number, it's just as likely to be someone selling me solar panels or auto warranties 
as it is someone with a nutrient question. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not ignoring you. Please leave a, please leave a voicemail or shoot me a text and I'll get back to you as, as soon as I can. But, you know, I just, you know, tell people to, you know, try to think with a level head, reach out, use the information you can. And hopefully Jared and I will be back in a, a month or two and we'll focus more on nitrogen uh, and talk a little bit more about managing that in the coming crop and just take it one day at a time. Absolutely. That's exactly right. And, and same for me on the leaving a message or, or a text. I deal with the same thing with all the, the random calls from, from a wide range of numbers that I get. Uh, if you are looking for some more information uh, on just general rice production, a lot of our recommendations and things, please go to uaex.uada.edu slash rice. That'll jump you right to the main rice page uh, with a lot of our publications. One of the main ones, uh, you know, already out and at county offices, the 2022 Rice Management Guide. Uh, good to pick that one up or obviously download on the website. And again, on that rice page, you know, the handbook, lots of other useful publications and information, and obviously ways to get hold of us about a wide range of topics. But uh, with that and a lot of the information and work that we do, certainly supported by uh, the growers through the Arkansas Rice Checkoff and administered by the Arkansas Rice Research and Promotion Board. And certainly Trent and I are, are appreciative of, of support uh, from the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture for what we get to, to wake up and do every day. And so with that, we hope to uh, see you out in a rice field somewhere this year, hopefully for good reasons, but I always say I never get to look at good rice. It's always something wrong. I only look at sick rice, Trent. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, all the time. So with that, uh, let us know if we can help. And thanks for joining us for this episode of Rice and Advice on Arkansas Row Crops Radio. Have a rice day. Arkansas Row Crops Radio is a production of the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture. For more information, please contact your local county extension agent or visit uaex.uada.edu.